And tonight we look at Jesus' last full day on earth, what would be, in our calendar, would be Thursday. And it was a significant day for them as they celebrated the Passover dinner that night. We're going to look at the events here from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22, at these events that unfold tonight. Well, there's many statements uh, or things in our world that when they come out, they don't sound exactly wrong, but they kind of sound true at the same time. It's a mixture, it seems, of falsehood and truthfulness as well. And the word that I think of when we think of these things is a word called paradox. A word called paradox. And there's things that, that you could just say that are paradoxes. One, one example, which is a common one of paradox, is this. This statement is false. You're like, well, wait, is it? is it? Is it false or is it true that it's false? Is it false that it's true? How about this one? If I know one thing, it's that I know nothing. Wait, well, does he know nothing or does he just know one thing? Like what, what, what exactly is the truth? Because they seem to conflict. They don't quite make sense sometimes. I always have loved um, kind of the visual paradox puzzles and pictures that come out. So I have a few for us tonight. The, the first one is called the impossible cube. As you look at it, your eyes start to go cross-eyed as you're like, wait, that's not supposed to look like that, but I can't quite determine why it's not supposed to look like that. It's a cube, but it's not. A, what, what's going on with the cube? The next one is called, I believe it's pronounced the blivet. Where on one side, you're like, all right, there's two things going out. On the other side, there's three. And your mind's like, wait, what? I literally was like on my computer drawing the lines back. And I'm like, how does this make sense? It, it seems to be a paradox that two just naturally becomes three. Another paradoxical image is called the Penrose Stairs. These stairs that always seem to be going up or down depending on which way you're going. But it just seems from this optic to never and this kind of came back into vogue, by the way, if you watch the movie Inception, which is a popular movie um, several years ago. These stairs were played a pivotal role in the movie. That whole movie was kind of a paradox of things as well. And perhaps the most famous visual paradox is called the Penrose Triangle. The Penrose Triangle. As you see the sides and the images, you know it doesn't quite make sense on how it bends. But your mind at first glance isn't quite sure and how to make sense of it. See, there, there's things in Christianity that often seem like a paradox as well. There's things in the Bible that, that describes Christianity, and at first glance, you look at it, and you're like, well, that, if I add those two together, that just doesn't quite seem to make sense. And they're what we would call paradoxes, that, that, that they're ironies that one thing would actually lead to something else, even though it's not what we would expect. And as we look at this Thursday in Jesus's life tonight, we're going to discover three paradoxes of Christianity. Three paradoxes of Christianity. So in Luke chapter 22, we're going to be beginning tonight in verse 7. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. It says this, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? 
where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the the Passover. This preparation that Jesus asks them for is reminiscent of the first event of the week where he prepares and sends disciples ahead to get the the colt or the donkey to celebrate his, his coming into Jerusalem on, where he gives them very specific instructions and the disciples go, and just as Jesus says it will be, it is. And again, he gives these two disciples very specific instructions and they go, and just as Jesus has said it would be, again, it is. It's a reminder again, and one of the reasons why in the visuals that we used for this series, it's like a calendar. Because it's important for us to remember that the events of this final week of Jesus's life didn't catch Jesus off guard. Jesus just didn't happen to get stuck in Jerusalem on the wrong time and the crowds turned against him and he didn't know what was happening. But Jesus is in full control. Jesus knows what is happening during this time and what it will eventually lead to. And so he says to go and to prepare the Passover for them. The preparation for the Passover would have involved many different things. First, you needed to find a space for it. The tradition was that you would celebrate the Passover within the city walls of Jerusalem. And that's why at this time, Jerusalem was a town of about 40 to 50,000. There were likely around 200 to 250,000 people in Jerusalem because that is where, if you could, you traveled there to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus commends his disciples to go and to prepare for it. They not only would have needed to find the space for it, they would have needed to, to buy the right food, for it and prepare this, the, the place for them to eat as well. And Jesus says, go and you'll see a man carrying a water jar and you will meet him and follow him and tell him the, the instructions that Jesus gives him. Well, to us, that might not seem like, I mean, that's kind of odd, but it doesn't strike as very extraordinary. But back then, the, the main people who were the ones who were responsible for taking and carrying water from the wells back into the city were women. If you think about so much of biblical scripture, the woman at the well that Jesus met, that was their custom, was that the women would carry water and take it back to the house. So a man carrying a jar of water actually would have stood out and been quite unique during that time. It's quite likely here, scholars, we don't know for sure, but scholars estimate that Jesus likely has already prearranged with this person the place where he will celebrate the Passover with his disciples. So it's most likely that Jesus has already prearranged this and this, this meeting place with a man with, with this water jar was the sign for them already. And Jesus sends them ahead and they prepare it and they furnish the upper room just as Jesus had instructed them. Verse 14 it reads like this. And when the hour came, he reclined at the tables and the apostles with him. This idea of reclining was was the thing that happened at the Passover. The Passover wasn't like how you and I would eat a meal, which in the U.S., if a meal, for me, if it goes beyond about 30 minutes, if you're at a restaurant for an hour, you're like, wow, this has been a fairly long meal. But in their time, especially for a Passover celebration, the Passover wasn't just about eating. It was a long night filled with many different rounds of eating, of drink, filled with teaching and question and answer times. It was a family celebration. And Jesus reclines at the table and all of the apostles are there with him. Verse 15, 
Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He will not eat of it again after this until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. This expression, I have earnestly desired, is this expression showing great emotion, great passion for Jesus for what they are about to do. See, it's, it's important for us to remember as Jesus here is celebrating the Passover, just what the Passover is. What events are they commemorating? Now, if you grew up in a, in a Jewish household, this is like old news to you, right? And I've gotten a, the privilege to know some of my friends and explain and hear them talk about the customs that they have. But the Passover celebration looked back earlier on in Israel's history to the events recorded in the Bible in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And the people of Israel were in bondage in Exodus. They were in slavery. And God took Moses, and after taking him out to the desert, God sent Moses to Pharaoh. And he told told Pharaoh that God had said to let the people of Israel go. Pharaoh thought about it and was like, yeah, no. right? This is my slave workforce. I'm not going to let them go. And so God sent down a series of plagues on the nation of Egypt. By the way, each plague was a specific attack against an Egyptian god. Each of those plagues is an Egyptian god that they worship, that the god of Israel is saying, no, actually, this creation, this serves me. This, this serves me as well. All these gods you worship are actually things that serve the true God. The final plague that was sent was the angel of death. The angel of death, where the firstborn in every single family in Egypt would be slaughtered. The firstborn in every home would be killed. But instructions were given to every family on how to save your family so that the angel of death would pass over your house and your oldest son would go unharmed. And they involved preparing some food, preparing some drink, and then you would, op- you would take a spotless lamb, you would kill the lamb, and on your doorpost you would spread the blood of that lamb on the posts. And when the angel of the Lord came to you, he would pass over that house and go on to the next one. And immediately after the Passover is when Pharaoh released the people of Israel and they left Egypt, left their slavery, and started their journey towards the promised land. Throughout Israel's history, for hundreds and hundreds of years after this, they looked back on the Passover, on this deliverance from Egypt, as their greatest sign that God was their Savior that God would always provide a way of salvation. And Jesus is earnestly desiring to remember this with them, to celebrate the Passover together with them. Verse 17 says this, And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The breaking of the bread would have taken place during the third course, actually, of the Passover meal. And it was a symbol looking back to what they had done. But Jesus takes this Passover symbol, and he gives it a new depth of meaning. That when they break the bread, it's not just a remember of the past, but actually they were remembering his body, which would be given for them. 
He says them every time they partake of this meal to do it in actually remembrance of not just the Passover and not just Egypt, but in remembrance of Jesus himself. It says this in verse 20. And likewise, the cup, which would have been the third cup that night, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you and is the new covenant in my blood. It is blood that is poured out for you. This word poured out was significant back in the Old Testament sacrificial system. To confirm the covenant with Israel in Exodus chapter 24, blood was poured out. In Leviticus chapter 4, when talking about offering sacrifices for the sin of the people, five different times it talks about blood being poured out for the people. Now Jesus is saying his blood would be poured out for their own salvation. See, in the Passover celebration, there would have been four cups that they would have had during the Passover time, that they would have had the meal together. Four cups of the Passover celebration. And these refer back to the promises that take place in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The first cup of the Passover would have been this cup of sanctification. And the promise behind that was from Exodus chapter 6, The promise is that God says, I am the Lord and I will bring you up out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And that was how they started their Passover celebration. Sometime later, they would partake of the second cup, which was the cup of deliverance. This reminded them of God's promise to them in Exodus 6. that said, I will deliver you from slavery to the land that I promised you. I will take you out of slavery. It's significant then that after the second cup would have been the bread was broken then. And that's when in the meal, Jesus breaks this bread and gives it, says, this is my body. And it's then the third cup, which Jesus takes and gives new meaning to. The third cup, which is the cup of redemption. The promise there in Exodus says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. See, Jesus takes the cup of redemption, which they look back as the redemption for their people. And he says, this cup of redemption, which take you out of Egypt, this cup of redemption is now the cup that you'll remember me by, as I will redeem you, not from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to your very own sin. And the fourth cup, which Jesus doesn't partake of, which he says he will not take of again until the kingdom comes, is the cup of hope. The promise there is that he will be God, your people and I will be your God. And this is the cup that looks forward to when Jesus returns again and partakes in a meal with his people and drinks of this cup, the final cup signifying that Jesus has brought about full restoration through the world. See, the, the first paradox that we see as Jesus takes this Passover meal with his disciples and reinterprets the Passover in light of what he is about to do. The first paradox that we see here is that salvation comes through sacrifice. Salvation comes through sacrifice. It's interesting that verse seven, how it starts off, it says, it came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. There was a necessity that the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus reinterprets this passage where the Passover lamb was the one slain for the people's sin. And he's saying, now I will be the one who will be slain for the people's sin. That Jesus is the one who will go before and pay the penalty 
for sin. In the theological term, it's called atonement, that Jesus pays for our sin. And we believe that it's called not just any atonement, but we believe what is called the penal substitutionary atonement. I'll walk you through that. Penal substitutionary atonement. What I mean by penal, it comes from the word penalty, is that on the cross, Jesus took the penalty for your sin and for my sin. For all who place their faith in Jesus, the penalty that was due you and me because of the sin that we have committed, the wrong that we've done in our lives, actually went towards Jesus as he sacrificed his life. He paid for the penalty of your sin. And it was substitutionary in that this, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't deserve to be there, but who did? I did. And you did. And each person who's ever lived who sinned, which by the way is everyone who's ever lived besides Jesus, that's who deserved to be on the cross. But Jesus was a sacrifice and he substituted for us and took our place. See, in some churches, maybe even this week, they'll point to the cross and they'll say, what an example of love for other people. Yes, The cross is an example of love, but the cross is much more than just an example of love. The cross is the means by which we can have salvation. It's because Jesus didn't just show us an example of love, but Jesus took our sin and took our place on the cross. He was our sacrifice for sin. See, it's clear here as the apostle Paul looks back at Passover and these events that Jesus had, that he clearly saw Jesus instituting himself as this new sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul writes this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The one who turns away God's wrath. We deserve the punishment, but Jesus' blood turns that punishment away and he has taken it on him for us. There are so many implications for us with this idea that salvation comes through sacrifice. The first, I think, implication that I want us to think about as we think of of the Passover kind of being transformed in this event, especially if you've been at church for much time, you realize that Jesus' words here are the foundation for something we celebrate every month, and that is the Lord's Supper or communion together. That Jesus has taken the Passover and instead made it now something that we should regularly celebrate. The Passover, when it was celebrated by them, had elements both of the past, the present, and the future. They looked back to their salvation from Egypt. In the present, they looked at the covenant relationship they shared with God. And in the future, they looked for the Messiah who was to come. The same way, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we partake of communion together, there is a past, a present, and a future element to the Lord's Supper. When we partake, we're to look to the past and realize the covenant relationship we can have with God through his blood shed for us. When we look back at the blood that was shed for us, we look to the present and we see that there's a unity of believers with Jesus as well as with each other because of the work that Jesus has done. He's brought about a new covenant relationship between us. And we look to the future, the fulfillment of all that has yet to come when Jesus returns. See, it's not 
the power or the intensity of our faith that saves us, but the, the matter of the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us. I was, uh, I was looking around this week in different things, and I came across a sermon um, preached by one of my favorite seminary professors, D.A. Carson, a well-known seminary professor who's been at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for a long time. And he was talking about the Passover, and I just love this illustration he gave. He said, think back to that first Passover, and you have two Jews. I think he joked their names were Smith and Brown, something like that, like very Jewish names, right? Like there were, there were two Jewish men alive the first day that Passover was to take place. You have one guy who they, they've both done all that was required. They, they brought the food. They've done the things. They sacrificed the lamb. They put him on the doorposts. The one guy's like, well, did, did you do the stuff? And he's like, yeah, I did. He's like, well, man, I, I don't really know about all this, right? Like, this is kind of weird. We're like killing an, an animal, putting blood on the door. But like, I don't, I don't really know. Is that, is that, is that going to be enough? And the other guy's really excited. And he's like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. We're excited. God's going to save us. And he asked the question of the two of those men, both of whom did exactly what Jesus asked of them, which of their sons died that night? The answer is neither, because it didn't matter whether they weren't quite sure if it was enough or not, or whether they were convinced fully, what mattered was the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. What matters is not the intensity of your faith, how strong you know, but what matters is the blood of Jesus shed on your behalf for salvation. That's what matters. And we can have assurance of salvation because it doesn't depend on your and my emotional feelings. It depends on one thing. It depends on the blood of the lamb. That we can have assurance of salvation. Jesus enters into this new covenant established by his blood. Salvation comes through sacrifice. We see here continuing in verse 21, it says this, he quickly transitions, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus knows what has happened right before these events in Luke chapter 22, the first seven verses actually record Judas going to the chief priests and, and exchanging the things so that he would then have the right to betray Jesus. And he sets up the sign to them. Jesus knows this. Scholars actually think from how John talks about the meal, what happens that it's very likely that Judas is actually sitting just to the immediate left of Jesus. He might even be sitting right next to him that Jesus talks about this, that, that he will be betrayed and the one who would betray him is here. It's been ordained by God. But notice his betrayer, it's not like because it's ordained by God. Well, that's fine for the one who betrays me. It says, woe to that man. Woe to that man. A strong sense of judgment, of guilt on that person for what they are about to do. Verse 23, and they being all the disciples began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. The disciples become defensive and contentious before Jesus. They start pointing fingers. They start wondering who's going to be the one to do this act. The second paradox 
of Christianity that we see here played out in this story is that triumph comes through treason. Jesus's triumph comes through treason. See, this was a true act of that Judas did, a true act of betrayal and evil, right? There's no way around making it sound like, oh no, Judas was actually a really good guy. He just accidentally made one bad decision. No, this was an act of pure evil on Judas's behalf. He betrayed Jesus, the one who which he had served and known and that he knew Jesus loved him so much. He was totally betrayed by him. It was pure evil. Yet through this act of evil, God still got the glory, right? Through this act of total evil, this act of total treason, triumph and glory was still brought about and had by God. See, nothing can stop God from being brought the glory. It says this in Isaiah chapter 42, verse eight, declares, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And as we see here, this treason that took place within his own disciples, betraying Jesus over for some silver, that Jesus still brings triumph through even the treason that was brought about by the people around him. So I think we all naturally love a comeback story. Right, where it seems to be totally going one way and yet someone comes back against the odds and has victory against it. And I was thinking this week of a comeback story and I had a few different options in mind as I was thinking of a comeback story. And I was at lunch this afternoon with Pastor Mark, one of our pastors here, and he goes, huh, he just pulled out his phone some text and he goes, huh, look at that. Tiger Woods won the Masters tournament today. So this is breaking news. If you didn't know this, this is only about five hours old, I think, right? Now, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, it would have been like, of course he won. He wins every single thing he enters. The guy is amazing. But Tiger Woods was down two strokes today with seven to go. But that's not just the big comeback that he had. He had gone through a major scandal about nine years ago now. In 2014, in 2015, and 2017, he had major back surgery. He had to basically teach himself to walk again a year and a half ago. It said after his rehab, he went months without playing golf. He, took, he went to the driving range. He took his first swing. This was the man who could hit a golf ball farther than anyone else in the world. And he hit it about 90 yards. He said, I don't, I don't know if I could ever play the game of golf again. In December of 2017, just, what, 15 months ago, he was ranked 1,199th in the world. His career seemed to be over. He hadn't won a major tournament in over a decade. And yet he came back today and won the Masters tournament. And if you have followers like me or, or friends like me on Facebook and on Twitter, everyone's talking about it. It's the biggest sports or it's the biggest story of the day that he came back from against all odds. Everything seemed stacked against him, yet he came back and won. The cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest comeback story in the history of the world. Right? All odds seemed stacked against him. There was no way that through this treason and this betrayal that God could be brought glory. Yet it's the greatest comeback story of all because the greatest triumph of all came through a treason of his own disciples. See, the cross reminds us that nothing will stop and nothing can take God's glory. Right? He will get the glory. Nothing can stop it, even the treason of one of his own disciples.
Verse 24, they're still there in the upper room taking the Passover together. Verse 24 says this, a dispute also rose among them. Now, if you're me, you're thinking, okay, so they've like finally figured out who it's going to be, right? They're like, ah, Judas, he's not, he's not saying no hard enough. It's got to be Judas. What are we going to do to Judas? A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I'm among you as the one who serves. They're arguing about the greatest and Jesus talks about service. See, in the Gospel of John, earlier on in the Passover dinner, it records this amazing event that most likely during the second cup that they were taking would be a ceremonial time where you would wash your hands, a washing of hands. And it's most likely during, the, it is during the Passover dinner, probably during that time, that Jesus took off his robe and put a towel on around his waist, which would have been, by the way, the dress, the, the attire that a slave would have worn. That's what a slave wore, was a towel around their waist. A master, a teacher, a rabbi wear a towel? No, that's for a slave. And he got down and he went around and he washed each of the disciples' feet. He washed their feet, the greatest act of service that he could have shown them. And later on in the meal, after their master, their Lord, has taken on the lowest place and served them, here they are debating about who is the greatest among them. See, the third, the third paradox that this passage shows us is that honor comes through humility. Honor comes through humility. I love when reflecting on Jesus washing his disciples' feet, one, one commentator writes, the disciples were interested in titles and Jesus offers them towels. They were interested in titles and Jesus says, here's some towels to wash each other's feet. See, there's this upside down economy of God. The greatness is not found in a status or in a position, but actually in our service to others. Greatness is not seen in your status before others, but your service to others. That's where greatness for God is seen. So just think about it for you. Who are the most influential people in your life? Outside of your immediate family, your parents, your wife, perhaps your children, who have been of outside influences the most influential people in your life? Now, I know for me, when I think about that question, my life has been profoundly impacted in very powerful and deep ways by people that none of you have ever heard of and ever will. Because they're not famous. They don't have a platform. They don't have a following. But they were faithful people who served God well. I thought this week of a man named Mr. Michalizek who when in April 1st, 1992, when I was still a young boy, I wanted to place my faith in Jesus. He took me to the back of the fellowship hall, Mr. Michael Isaac, and he led me through the plan of salvation. 
and prayed with me and helped me understand what it meant to put my faith in Jesus. About eight or nine years later, that same man, Mr. Michael was my junior high small group leader at my church. I mean, junior high is a rough time sometimes, right? And there's a lot of transition that's going on. Everyone's kind of weird when they're 13, 14 years old, right? And there was a lot of stuff going on. And he was someone who would always just show love and speak truth into my life. None of you know who that is. None of you have ever met him before. But he showed up at moments in my life and had a powerful influence. Why? Was it because he was great? Because he had a platform? Because he wrote books? Because he, no. It's because he served God. He just served where there was a need. It wasn't because of some great status that he had, but it was because of service that he offered to others. As I thought, there's other examples in my life, and I'm sure if we could talk together, there would be examples in your life where it's not famous, well-known people who have made an impact, but just regular people who were not committed to being great, but just committed to serving others. Is the desire of our hearts to be great, or is the desire of our hearts to serve? Is the desire of our hearts to be great, to be known, to have a status, Or is the desire of our hearts, which is the desire of Jesus' heart, simply to serve other people? See, the greatest significance comes from faithful service. Let's not focus on status, but let's focus on faithfulness of service to each other. One area in which we see that faithful service um, can be offered is that we see anything out there is not too low for us. Right? There's nothing too low for us to do. And sometimes there's people in this world who view other things as being too low for them. And there's lots of jokes that are made about this where it's called, um, where people are told to do something and their response is, well, that's not my job to do that. Right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't get paid to do that. Find someone else to get paid to do that. I was reading a story this week about a man who was in the Navy And he was stationed overseas and he was um, working in construction. He was a construction mechanic. And they were working and and training with some new people on on a tractor that they had coming into where they were. And they were construction mechanics, then equipment operators. So the guys who drove the trucks and the guys who kind of helped with the mechanics of it. And the trainer came in and he asked this guy who was a mechanic, hey, do you know how to operate this truck in such and such a way? And he said he was new in the Navy. He was about six months in. And he said, my response was, well, that's not my job. He said the commanding officer got very still and looked at him and then just went about his business. And he didn't think anything of it. He said, till the next day, his superior came in to where he was. And he said, for two hours straight, he got screamed at in the face because there is no job too low for you. Every job, if you're a Navy officer, is your job. And he was assigned then for two straight days to do nothing but rake the leaves on the base. And his officers would come up to him regularly and tell him, hey, this, this is your job. This is your job. See, sometimes we view certain things as being too low, right? Oh, if, if if it's like this, oh, will I be seen by people? We won't say that out loud, but we'll think about it in our heads. Right? Who will notice? Who else will be there? How could this benefit me? Ideas that we're actually about our own greatness. Or is there no job that's too low, no service that's too insignificant for us? These paradoxes that our salvation 
is provided through the sacrifice of Jesus' son. Triumph has come through treason, and that in our lives, honor can come only through humility. God, we thank you that you humbled yourself. You took on flesh, you became servant, and were made in the likeness of man. God, in this week, we celebrate that you came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and then died in our place and for our sin. God, may we learn what it means to humbly serve you, to not be seeking after our own greatness, but to seek to exalt you in our world. God, will we be reminded again this week of the sacrifice that you offered for us so that we could know you. We thank you for your love. We praise you for your sacrifice for sin. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.